We'll read these verses, beginning at verse 18, and let me just remind you that we're taking a bit of a break from Romans to think about this matter of worship, and the reason for doing that is that, uh, that we are, um, we're a, a group of folks, um, some of whom are familiar with one another and familiar with this church, and some of whom are new to one another and new to this church, and, and the whole reason for doing this, it just, it's my own reflections on sort of where we are and the ways in which we've been blessed over this last year and couple of years. Uh, so I've thought about that. It just seemed like it would be a good idea for us to talk a little bit about what it is we're doing here. <laughs> why do we do this, and why do we do the particular things that we do? And, and so that's what we're doing as we look at these these passages, and we try to we try to capture some of what it is that that actually is going on, what really is going on here in worship, and what worship is about. So let me uh, have you read with me Hebrews 12, beginning at verse 18. And I trust that as we read this, the connections between what we're going to talk about this week and what we talked about last week will be obvious. Hopefully, you'll see the connections between what happened with and for and to Israel and what is going on with us, uh, we who are the Israel of God on this side of the Passover and in the midst of our exodus as we make our way to our permanent home, the new heaven and the new earth. So Hebrews 12, beginning at verse 18, for you, for you, and, and you are the you here, okay? It's not somebody else, but it's you. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear, but you, you have come to Mount Zion. You have come to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. And you have come to innumerable angels in festal gathering. And you have come to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and you have come to God, the judge of all, and you have come to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and you have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. You have come to these things. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, help us, help us somehow to apprehend that when we gather in this place at this time for this purpose, we step, we step into a different place. We step into a different world. We step into a different time. We step into the eternal realities described in this passage. Help us, Lord Jesus to see it, understand it, and somehow by your grace even feel it as we gather this morning. 
Help us, we pray in your name. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, I feel the need, uh, as is uh, normally the case, to do a, a, review, a bit of a review and just remind you that, uh, that worship, basically, if you were to, if you were to write down a, uh, a simple definition of worship, what worship is, worship is simply to ascribe worth to the one who is worthy to be worshipped. You remember the word comes from uh, this old English word, which means worthship. Uh, and worship is simply to ascribe worthiness or worth to the one who is worthy to be worshipped. And, and that one who is worthy to be worshipped, the one uh, who summons us to worship him throughout the Psalms and really across the whole of Scripture, that, that one who is worthy to be worshipped is the eternal God, um, the eternal God, the infinite God. Uh, I've included in, in the service for the last two weeks this section of the Westminster Confession of Faith, and I just uh, encourage you to think about a couple of things as we think about who God is and his worthiness and some of the words that are used here. You know, it's interesting when we try to talk about God, when we try to describe him, which means when we try to take the scriptures seriously and draw conclusions from the scriptures, which are God's word to his people for their good, for their instruction, for their teaching. When we try to draw conclusions from the data of scripture and summarize who God is, we find that language fails us, right? We find that language fails us. And you see that reflected in what we've affirmed this morning, this affirmation of faith. Language fails us, and we see that because we use negatives, right? We use negatives. We, we don't have language to describe God positively, comprehensively. We have to use negatives. We have to say that God is infinite, that he is not finite, that he is something other than what we know we are. We are finite. We are limited. And he is not finite. He is not limited. We use, we use words like vast, immensely vast. You know, we're, we're struggling to find language to describe who and what God is. And we find that language fails because he is not what we are. Uh, I had a friend in town last week who told me about this uh, article, which he subsequently sent to me about the sun. Um, you know, our sun, the sun that is at the center of our solar system, is one of over 100 billion stars in our galaxy. And our galaxy, I'm told, is 100,000 light years across. So you go from one edge of our galaxy to the other edge of our galaxy. Now, see, these numbers are so big, we can't even get our brains around these things. Our galaxy is 100,000 light years across. So from one end of it to the other, it would take traveling at the speed of light, which is 186,000 miles per second. That's fast. That's fast. Like, that's way fast. Traveling at the speed of light for 100,000 years just to traverse our galaxy. And our galaxy is one of, remember Carl Sagan? Billions. Billions of galaxies. I mean, we, our brains are, we can't 
apprehend. We can't. And what we understand from the scriptures is that God has created it all, that he has named all of the stars that fill our galaxy and fill all of those galaxies. That is a lot of names. God has named the stars and he fills the totality of that space. And we use negative kinds of terms because we simply can't comprehend and articulate in positive terms how big, immense, vast God is. He is immensely vast. He is infinite. And then, you know, there's the matter of his power. I, I learned from this article we, we, we said this morning uh, that he is powerful, that he has all power. He is almighty. He possesses all might. I learned from this article this last week that the sun consumes 700 million pounds of hydrogen, which I was told this morning is very light. 700 million pounds of hydrogen every second, converting it into helium and into energy. The energy is initially gamma rays. By the time it gets to us, it's no longer gamma rays. If it were gamma rays, we'd be torched. We'd be nuked. Something happens to it. I don't understand the physics. I don't get it. All I know is when I wake up in the morning, the sun is shining. And especially here in Florida, I'm warm. It gets here. It gets here. I mean, God created this nuclear reactor that's 96 million miles away from us. And it keeps us warm. And it keeps this planet warm. Keeps it from dying. Keeps it from freezing in an instant. He is immensely vast and he possesses all, all power. And that is only one star that consumes all of that hydrogen. One star among the billions and billions and billions of stars that have all of that energy and all of it is brought into existence with a mere word by the mere word of his power. And he sustains it, Hebrews 1 tells us, by the word of his power. I can't get my brain around this, but what I understand is that God is worthy of my worship. He's worthy of my worship. He's worthy of my worship because of who he is. He is worthy of my worship because of what he does. We talked about this last week. He's created things. He sustains things. But he is especially worthy of my worship because he is a redeemer. Because he's a redeemer. I said to one of our regular attenders this, mor attenders this morning who told me uh, that, that uh, hydrogen is light, you know, and 700 million pound, tons, 700 million tons of hydrogen consumed every second. I said, that God calls me his friend. He calls me his friend, not his enemy. He calls me his friend and he's worthy of my worship because he has redeemed me. He created me in his image 
and he has redeemed me out of sin and bondage. He's brought me back to himself so that I might know him and love him and delight in him, that I might be amazed at this love which is infinite, which is as wide as the cosmos, which is unconditional, which is relentless, which is for him effortless, but which has given me his son. And by his son, he's taken away my sin and has brought me to himself. And so God himself is worthy of my worship because he gives forgiveness to sinners. He gives a home to the homeless. He gives restoration to the broken. He gives comfort to the sorrowful. God is worthy of my worship because of who he is and what he does. We need to remember that God is at the center of worship. God is at the center of worship, not man. And here's the paradox. Here's the irony. Here's the incredibly mysterious thing. And it's a point we don't want to miss. If I come to worship for God, I get what I most deeply need and desire. If I come to worship for me, if I make myself the center of worship, the thing that I most long for, most desperately need, slips through my fingers, never to be found. John Piper has put it well. Many of you know this, this little phrase. Piper has captured this reality so well. When God is at the center, not me, God is glorified and I am satisfied. God is most glorified in me when I am most satisfied in him. Anything else leaves me restless, restless. Augustine captured it. You have made us for yourself, O God, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. There were probably a few restless folk yesterday when the University of South Florida was leading the University of Florida seven to nothing. See, we get restless, really and truly, about the silliest of things. And I'm not saying that just because Michigan beat Notre Dame. Our hearts are restless until we rest in God. So God is to be worshipped because he is worthy. And then the second thing that we looked at last week is the pattern for our worship. And the pattern for our worship is the Exodus, the, pass, the Passover and the Exodus in which God, because he loves and treasures his people. You remember those characteristics of worship uh, because God loves and treasures his people. He says that as he reminds the Israelites of what it is that he did at the Passover, Exodus 19. You saw what I did to the Egyptians and how I brought you up, I bore you up on eagle's wings and brought you to myself to make you a treasured possession and a kingdom of priests. The pattern for our worship is the Passover and the Exodus in which God, who loves and treasures his people, brings them out of their bondage, brings them to himself, brings them into freedom and into the liberty, the liberty 
of living under his lordship and rule. And that's the pattern for worship. That's how we should think about worship week by week by week. Understanding that as we gather each week, what we're engaged in is a recapitulation of what we read and see in the book of Exodus. It's a repeating, if you will. It's a reenactment each week because the Passover, the permanent Passover, has been offered for us because we have come under the blood which is spread across the lintel and doorposts of our homes. Because the lamb slain before the foundation of the world has died to spare his people the threat of death, the visitation of death. Because our Passover has been sacrificed for us. We have been and are being led out of our bondage. We are in the midst of our exodus headed to our true and permanent homeland. And what we do week by week is reenact that. Remember that. Recapitulate that. Come into the presence of God, not going to an earthly mountain, but coming in fact to an invisible but real mountain. The most real of all mountains. That's why I wanted us to read Hebrews 12 verses 18 to 24 because the writer of this letter is reminding these Christians of exactly what it is the high priestly work of Jesus, the Passover who is slain for his people, actually means for them. What does it mean? It means that they are set free from their bondage. It means that they are set free from the threat of death. It means that their sins are forever behind them, never to be a threat to them again. And it means that they have gained access to all of these things that are described here in Hebrews 12, verses 18 to 24. Think about them. Look at the passage. Let me walk through some of these things with you. Again, the contrast is between what can be touched and what can't be touched. What could be touched? Well, Mount Sinai could be touched. Mount Sinai could be seen. But what can't be seen? What can't be touched? Mount Zion the more perfect mountain. And what is Mount Zion? Mount Zion is the place where the presence of God dwells. Mount Zion is the place upon which the city of Jerusalem is built. And what is in the center of the city? What is in the center of the city is the temple, the dwelling place of God. You see, the author is capturing all of this Old Testament imagery, all of this imagery that would have been so familiar to the readers of this letter. And he's saying what you have been brought to and, and, and get and live with and wrestle with the tense of the verb. It's not a future tense. It's a past tense. You have been brought. You've been brought to these things. Not to a mountain that can be touched, that can be seen. Not to a mountain that blazes with fire and darkness and gloom and tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words and sounds were threatening and intimidating and fearsome. That voice, those words that Moses heard and that the whole nation heard as they gathered at the feet of that, at the foot of that mountain. 
Those words caused that whole mountain to tremble and shake. But you've not come to a mountain like that. You've come to a mountain that is not seen, but you have come to the very real world of the presence of God, the very presence of God. That is what you have been brought to. And look at the things that are going on as we are brought to the presence of God, as we are brought into Mount Zion and into Jerusalem and into the presence of the one who dwells in the midst of the temple, in the midst of Jerusalem, in the midst of Mount Zion. Look at the things that are going on. Verse 22, you have been brought to innumerable angels in festal gathering. You have been brought to innumerable angels in festal gathering. Now look, folks. All I want to say to you is that there is way more going on here than you can see or feel. There is way more going on around you than you can see or feel. What has happened this morning, which we accept by faith, not because our eyes see it or our hands can feel it or our ears can hear it. What we accept by faith is that what goes on here is that the new Jerusalem with God in the midst of Jerusalem descends into the midst of the world and we who gather for worship are gathered up into that place there to meet in the midst of innumerable angels. You're surrounded by angels, my friends. You are surrounded right now in this moment, at this moment, you are surrounded by angels who are singing the praises of Almighty God. And what we do when we gather for worship, sometimes Zach or Glenn will allude to this, what we do when we gather for worship is add our voices to what is already being sung. Add our joyful noise to the joyful noise that is taking place in the presence of Almighty God. Innumerable angels, and look how they're gathered. They're gathered in festal gathering. What does that mean? What is a festivity? What are festivities? Festivities are parties. That's, that's crass. That's pedestrian. But festivities are parties. When something is festive, it's party-like. What is going on in the presence of God? The angels are rejoicing and celebrating. And God is receiving their rejoicing and their celebration. It reminds me of Luke 16. You know the parable that Jesus tells, which is actually three parables the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and the parable of the lost son. If you read Luke 16, at the end of each of those parables, what is going on? Celebration and rejoicing. And Jesus at one point in telling that parable says, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels 
over one sinner who repents. There is joy in the presence of the angels. Check me out on this. That's what the text says. The text does not say the angels are rejoicing. The text says there is joy in the presence of the angels over one sinner who rejoices or over one sinner who repents. So who is the one who is rejoicing in the presence of the angels? It is God himself. It is God himself who is rejoicing and the angels witness his rejoicing, rejoicing that the work of the son has been effective, that it gathers sinners, it draws sinners who can be forgiven, who can be set free, who enter into the joy of their master. And as they enter into the joy of their master and rejoice with him and in him, the whole of the heavenly host surrounding the throne engages in that rejoicing and they become festive. That's what's going on. That's what's happening. And so where are we? Where are we right now? I know we're sitting on padded chairs. I know we're trying to stay awake. I understand all of those things but we are somewhere else and somewhere else is here with us. That's what the text of Scripture is saying. That we have been brought to this place and that is what is going on in this place and we add our voices to it. And look at verse 23. We've been gathered to the assembly of the firstborn. The assembly of the firstborn. The synagogue of the firstborn, the gathering together of the firstborn. We're gathered in the midst of the angels to sing and to praise the one true God who is all of these things we've said and so much more. And we are gathered to the assembly of the firstborn. Earlier in Hebrews, in chapter 1, verse 6, Jesus is called the firstborn. He's referred to as the firstborn. But here, here, The language is plural. The assembly of the firstborn. Who is this assembly? It is all of those, all of those who by virtue of the fact that they are united to Jesus are with him, the firstborn. And you know that the firstborn is a term of honor and dignity in the Hebrew mind, the Jewish mind. It is the firstborn who inherits the wealth of the father. And so to whom are we gathered? We are gathered to this festive throng, this angelic throng, and we are gathered to the assembly of the firstborn, all of those who are co-heirs with Jesus of all of the fullness and blessedness of the Father's house. Look, our voices, as we sing our praises to God this morning, our voices are not only added to the voices of the angels, our voices are added to the voices of our brothers and sisters in the church all around the world who are offering their praises in all of those different languages in all of those different places and ways, our voices are added to their voices. We are united to the assembly of the firstborn. 
And then look at this last thing. And this should be profoundly encouraging, deeply encouraging to us all. But I will say, especially, especially this should be profoundly encouraging to all of us. All of us who have had to say goodbye to loved ones who have died in the Lord. It isn't just the angelic host. It isn't just the church as it gathers for worship. But it is also, verse 23, that we are gathered to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. In the Apostles' Creed, we affirm our belief in the communion of the saints. We say that. I believe in the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life after everlasting. Do you know what the proof text is for the affirmation, I believe in the communion of saints? It is Hebrews 12.23. When we gather for worship, We are gathering to worship with, yes, their bodies are dead. Yes, their bodies are in the ground. Yes, their bodies are suffering decay, but their spirits have been perfected and are in the presence of Jesus. And they, having died in the Lord, engage in worship, the worship of Jesus in the presence of Jesus. And when we worship, We are adding our voices to their praises. My friends, I don't fully get the math here, just like I don't get the math, the calculus of how hydrogen becomes helium, becomes gamma rays, and I wake up and it's warm. I don't get that calculus either. But somehow, somehow, we this day are worshiping with the Apostle Paul, with St. Augustine, with Martin Luther, with John Calvin, with Alan Robertson, and all of those whom we have loved and whose fellowship we have enjoyed, whose spirits, having been made perfect, are in the presence of Jesus, delighting in him. That is what we are doing And most especially, we have come to Jesus. Jesus, whose sprinkled blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. If you go back and you read Genesis and the story of Cain and Abel, you will read at Genesis 4.10, God saying, your brother's blood cries to me from the ground. And the cry of the blood of Abel was a cry for justice. We have come to better blood, haven't we? Not to blood that cries for justice, but to blood which has suffered justice and now cries forgiveness and redemption and freedom. We come to Jesus, our Savior, Redeemer, the lover of our souls. And having been sprinkled by his blood, we are forgiven and we are clean. That's what we come to. That's what is going on here. 
as we worship week by week by week. Worship recapitulates what God has done for us in the Passover lamb, what he has done for us in the Exodus, and what he promises to us as we contemplate arriving in our permanent home. And as we think about worship, there are two words that I want to encourage you to think about. Guilty as charged, okay? I made a promise it would be two weeks. It's going to be three. Okay? I want you to think about these two words because as we come to the sermon next week, I want to expand upon these words and enlarge these words and show you again in detail why it is we're doing what we're doing as we gather week by week, the particulars of it. The two words are this, drama and dialogue. Drama and dialogue. What goes on here is a drama. It is a profoundly theological drama. It is the drama of all dramas. Because what goes on here week by week by week is the drama of redemption. It begins with God doing with us what he did with Israel and what he did with Abraham before Israel. It begins with a summons, with a call, a call to worship. It isn't Glenn who offers the call to worship. It isn't Zach who summons us to worship. It is God himself. God speaking, initiating, calling, summoning us to come into his presence based upon the finished work of Jesus, living under the finished work of Jesus. In some churches, worship begins. I'd love to do this at some level, but I know that it could offend some sensibilities, so we won't do it, but I just want you to think about it. In some churches, worship actually begins with someone leading a choir into the sanctuary carrying a cross. Why? To symbolize that as God calls us and summons us out of the world and into his presence, we come into his presence under the glory and beauty of the finished work of Jesus, the cross. And then the dialogue begins. And God who has called us into his presence, who has summoned us into his presence, then receives our praise as we sing in response to this summons. And having been summoned and having sung his praises, we then pray. We pray a prayer of adoration. We pray a prayer of congregational invocation. You know what an invocation is? What is it to invoke someone? It is to summon someone to come. And God, having called us and summoned us into his presence, and we, having heard that call, singing his praises, then call upon him to come and be in our midst. We invoke his presence to come and be with us. And you see the dialogue continues. God speaks. We respond. We pray. God responds. We sing. 
and God responds. We hear his word and we respond to his word with praise. If you go back and read Exodus, you read the first 22 or 23 chapters, you'll see that where all of this ultimately ends up, and it's so meaningful and poignant that we're having the Lord's Supper here today, if you read Exodus in chapter 23, chapter 24, as the covenant between God and his people is finally sealed and ratified, Moses and the elders sit in the presence of God and they eat and they drink. The culminating act of worship is to sit in the presence of God and be fed by him at his table, eating in his presence. What is eternity? How does Jesus describe heaven, the new heaven and the new earth? The banquet feast, the marriage feast of the Lamb, this table gets connected to what will be our experience in the new heaven and the new earth where we will feast, feast at the table which God sets before us to delight in the bounty that he spreads before us. This is just a taste, mere fragments, mere tokens of what awaits us. The culminating act of worship is to be in the presence of God, to delight in his presence, to eat and to drink in his presence. And the last thing that happens in a service of worship, as has been pointed out, I know Zach has pointed it out a couple of times, the last thing that happens in a service of worship is not a closing prayer. It is a benedictium, a good word. And that good word comes from the same source that the summons to worship comes from. That good word comes from God himself. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up the light of his countenance upon you and give you his peace as unhappily and unfortunately we have to leave this place we have to leave Mount Zion we have to leave Jerusalem we have to leave the presence of the God, of God in gathered worship and go back out into the world we need a word of blessing from God and he gives it in the new heaven and the new earth there will be no benediction because we will never have to leave. So, drama and dialogue. God meeting with his people, delighting in them, treasuring them, loving them, gathering them up into his presence, coming to be in the midst of their presence and summoning us to eat with him at the table that he spreads before us, a table that now and forever will remind us of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb slain, and by whose death we have been set free. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, uh, these things 
These things are incomprehensible to us. You are so vast and large and incomprehensible. And yet you have shown us things. You have helped us to see things. By your grace, we have come to understand things and even spiritually taste heavenly realities. Oh, Lord Jesus, as we prepare to come to this table, somehow being present with us by your spirit, may we taste these things still more. Grant us your help. Grant us your assistance. We ask in your name. Amen. We invite you to stand and we'll sing together as we prepare to come to the Lord's table. This is a wonderful reminder of God's goodness and grace, His favor before the throne of God above. Let's stand together and sing.